all the things that the Lord prescribes for us to do. He's already walked out our steps and made it possible for us. But we must say yes. We must give him our all in all that we give. We ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. That's the book of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by just simply saying yes. yes. And would you stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. Hebrews 7, 25 through 28. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once, for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. We find this morning that the author of Hebrews reminds us really of the central theme of this chapter. And the central theme of this chapter is the preeminence and excellence of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Pastor, why is Jesus Christ preeminent? Number one, because God has called Christ after the order of Melchizedek. And when you enlarge upon this fact, as the writer of Hebrews is doing here, he gives us like three quick evidences of the superiority of this particular priesthood. We see here that this priesthood is higher than the priesthood of Aaron. Look at Psalm 110 and 4, which is really a prediction of the messianic Christ to come. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This proves that Christ has been called to the order of Melchizedek and shows that he's the fulfillment of the prophecy that's associated with the Levitical order. 
Then second, we see again the superiority of Christ's priesthood over the priesthood of Aaron. There was a distinguishing mark. There was something that gave great gravity to this claim over this institution. It was a divine oath. Look at Hebrews 7, 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus Christ the guarantor of a better covenant. Thirdly, we see that there's a perpetual permanence of the priesthood of Christ. And that's shown to us in Hebrews 7, 23 through 24. Look what it says. The former priests were made many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues to live forever. So simply stated, it is Christ who is the permanent priest because he's a preeminent priest that lives forever. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And then we see here, as the author of Hebrews tries to bring this to a close, he also wants to bring the message to the forefront because he wants the church to have comfort in knowing that the mystery of the Old Testament scriptures have now been opened up to demonstrate the glory of the preeminent Christ over Judaism. That he takes everything to another level, everything to its completion. And because we are now fixed in that life by Christ who has redeemed us through his sacrifice on the cross, we are able to say yes to anything that he brings our way. And pastor, why are we able to say yes? Because we recognize that consequently Jesus is able to save. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save because he is holy, he is innocent, he is unstained, and he is separate from sinners. Jesus is able to sing because he has been made perfect forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we recognize that you have sent us your only begotten son. Your son that has the power to redeem, restore, renew our lives like never before. He has the power of salvation. He has the power to save us. Let us recognize this and let us give him our total devotion and love and honor because through him we will see all of your glory. Through him we will be able to live with you forever through his sacrifice on the cross our sins past present and future 
have been forgiven and placed as far as the east is from the west. It's all because Jesus is able to save. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Let's look at verse 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those, listen, those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to the Father God through God the Son. Since he, personal pronouns still referring to Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Man, this is a precious statement here. This word opens up with the word consequently, which denotes that there is an inference drawn from what we have previously heard. Consequently introduces a result, an effect on our outcome. It talks about a premise. And what is this premise? It gives us a conclusion that it rests upon. And it says that Christ Jesus is able to save unto the uttermost. Christ can save from the guttermost to the uttermost. He can save us completely. And let's think about that for a moment. Is anyone that God decides to save outside the sphere of his salvation? You know, many are concerned, and really, we shouldn't be, but many are concerned about the announcement of the salvation of Kanye West. They wonder aloud whether this conversion is true or not, or whether it's the greatest marketing scheme ever. I cannot give you an answer to that. It will rely on the fruit that we see in Mr. West's life from this day forward. But I can tell you, Jesus is able to save. He can save Mr. West or anybody else that he chooses to save. And why is this true, Pastor? Well, our text tells us, consequently, Jesus is able to save because of the oath of his consecration. Back in Hebrews again, <clears throat> we see that oath. Hebrews 20, or rather Hebrews 7, 20 through 22. <clears throat> and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made, uh, were made such without an oath. So the priests before him were made priests through man. But now we have a priest, his son, that is made a priest because of what had been prophesied over him. And it says, the Lord has sworn. Here you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That means Yahweh. So God the Father has sworn and will not change his mind. And now he's speaking about his son. You are a priest forever. So that is why Jesus is able to save because his father is immutable. He never changes. It was his purpose for his son to come and save the lost. He's able to save because Christ is the better covenant. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than the new covenant. He's a complete covenant. He's able to save because he's the guarantee. 
because of what he's done on the cross guarantees our salvation, guarantees our redemption, guarantees the fact that we have been saved from our sins. So because of the consequences of all that Christ has done, he's able to save to the othermost. And when we consider these great truths about Christ, when we recognize that he is the great prophet, the priest, and the king, it strengthens our faith. It increases our comfort in knowing that as God's people, we have a priest that can never fail. Is there a corollary here? I think it is, and it's an immediate consequence because you can draw an easy conclusion. Consequently, Jesus is able to save. He's able to save because he's all-powerful. He's able to save because he has lasting sufficiency. He's able to save because God has given him every ability, every attribute, every aspect of his ministry, every grace, everything he needs to have the full capacity to be the high priest of our lives. Look at Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Stop right there. What is propitiation? To propitiate means that he stands before the one who has been offended. He stands before a holy God who's been offended by our sins, and he accepts the punishment that was meant for each and every one of us. So he takes away the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It says here, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why is he able to help those who are being tempted? Because he didn't fail when he was tempted. Don't you want someone, uh, uh, do you want the first Adam that failed to give you advice? Because he can only show you how to sin. But the last Adam, who has a greater temptation, was able to withstand the devil. Who do you want to take advice from? In this view, it's not just the ability of Christ or the nature of Christ, but it is his office. Christ is above all the Levitical priesthood by reason of their personal infirmities, their limited tenure in office. They were unable to affect all the things desired by God and desired by us, which we needed the most. But Christ Jesus is our high priest because he is free from such imperfections. He is able. His priesthood can never be dissolved. It is imperishable and it's perpetual. It goes on forever. His office is sufficient. Christ is able to meet and conquer any challenge in our lives. 
This is not a temporary office for him. He's not some transient deliverer. But he's a supernatural, spiritual, eternal deliverer from God. And he can save us from any evil, harm, or danger. And his deliverance is always secure. We deal with sin each and every day. And sin has terrible consequences. Sin has the ability to pollute our lives. Sin has the ability to drench us in guilt. Sin has the ability to bring curses upon us because of the consequences of sin. Sin has the ability to captivate us and constrain us. But we have a Savior sent from heaven that it was written even before he was born. Look at Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. Jesus is able to save. He's able to subdue Satan. He's able to take away sin. He's able to propitiate our sin before a holy God. He's able to procure for us pardon for God. He's able to purchase grace and glory. Psalm 89, 19 says, Of old you've spoken a vision to your godly one. And I have said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted the one chosen from the people. Jesus is the one who undertook this work and he's able to accomplish it. He is the one that's able to bring all that the Father wants into completion. We don't need to look any further for salvation past Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can save. You know, when Saul had been anointed as king back in 1 Samuel 10, 27, there were some doubts whether or not he had the authority or he had the power to rule and to reign. Look at what it was said. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. You see, they did not understand, nor did they desire to know the power and authority that was behind him. Do we really realize the great privilege we have as individuals in the body of Christ that we have a loving and a gracious Savior who is able to save us out of any situation? that he loves us, he pursues us. And not only 
in his pursuit of us, he pursues us with the knowledge that he's going to bring us into the presence of his father and that he's going to cover all of our imperfections. From the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when God looks upon us, he does not just see us, but he sees our faith in Christ. And he sees the righteousness, not that we have, but the righteousness that has been transferred from Christ into our lives. Constantly, he's able to save us unto the uttermost. This last word in verse 25 really has a double meaning, uttermost. It could mean the perfection of the work that Christ has performed, or it could mean the duration of the work that Christ has done. Sometimes it's translated as completely or entirely or forevermore or simply forever. But just, let's just break it up. Let's look at the first meaning. Christ will not affect just one part of our salvation, just one part of our lives, then leave what remains of our lives to ourselves. No, he saves to the uttermost. He saves us completely. Christ will perfect us. He will not relinquish us to fall into that second death. Now look at the second meaning. Whatever hindrances there are in our lives, whatever difficulties there are in our lives, as we go from faith to faith to faith as believers, Jesus is able and fully competent to overcome all of those imperfections and difficulties in our lives, no matter how long the duration, no matter how long it takes, because he saves to the uttermost. And if you combine the two, saving to the uttermost means complete salvation and a salvation that is never ending. He saves those who draw near to God, those who are partakers of his salvation. Christ is able to save the uttermost, yet he does not save all, but Christ saves all that draw near to God. The multitudes heard about Christ, and because they loved the things of this world more than they loved Christ, they refused to follow him, they forsook him, and they would not come to him. Look at John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Think about what he's saying here. You think that you can gain me just through your knowledge of my word when at the same time you refuse to understand that my word is talking about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
I'm all about knowledge. I'm all about deep study. But if your knowledge is not connected to your heart and your knowledge and heart is not connected to true faith, it's worthless. Maybe you'd be a good contestant on Jeopardy, but really, if you don't put all three of those together, you're placing your life in Jeopardy because you don't recognize who it's talking about. Only those who come to God through Christ does he save. So, Pastor, what does it mean to come to God? To come to God first means that you must believe in him. Hebrews 1, or rather Hebrews 11 and 6, without faith is it impossible to please God, for whoever will draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Secondly, if you're going to draw near to God, you have to draw near to God in worship. Hebrews 10 and 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You see the problem there? Because those sacrifices are made by those priests continually year after year after year. But when our high priest, Jesus Christ, who is able to save, makes that same sacrifice one time, it's a once-for-all sacrifice, then those who draw near to him can be made perfect. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil consequence and our bodies washed with pure water. John Owens once said, they that come unto God by Christ are such as believing in him, they do give up themselves in holy obedience to worship in God, for God, and by God. To come to God through Jesus Christ is to surrender ourselves to holy worship before a holy God. God is a spirit and he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And to come to Jesus is to believe in the saving power that Jesus has as our high priest. To come to Jesus means we must come in obedience. To come to Jesus means we must come and live under his authority. To come to Jesus must mean that we must come and bow to his strength and bow to his lordship and bow to his ownership of our lives. Otherwise, if we're not willing to bow, we become rebels. Secondly, to come to Jesus requires reliance. We must rely upon his mediation of our souls. We must accept his grace. We must recognize that his sacrifice atones for our sins we must allow ourselves to have his intercession in our life. We must believe in him through faith. We must understand that he's the author and the perfecter of our faith, that he's the foundation of our lives, that he is the foundation of our redemption. 
believing and coming to Christ means that we believe that Christ Jesus is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever hope for or imagine. That means we've got to lean all the way in. You know, we, this superficial love for Christ, this superficial worship of Christ, this superficial devotion to Christ is a waste of your time. Partial obedience is total rebellion. Believing in Christ, that he can save to the utmost, that he is being able to draw us. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is through Christ that we come to God. 1 Peter 3.18. But Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do we recognize the incredible blessing of this substitutionary atonement of Christ? The one who suffered and died for the unrighteous. The one who never sinned and became sin for us that we might be children of God. This one who loved us so much that he was willing to follow everything that his father called him to do. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there is fruit and great consequences when we come to God through Christ Jesus because he has the ability to save us. John 17, 17 through 20. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Through Christ, he lives to make intercession for us. That is his perpetual ministry. He lives. The Lord Jesus lives in the lives or in our lives as a mediator between heaven and earth. He died for us to assure that we might live also. 1 Corinthians 15 and 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. When Jesus died upon that cross, he put away our sins. He removed the obstacle, the ultimate object of his death on that cross, his resurrection and his ascension was that we might enter glory and that we would attain eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Consequently, Jesus is able to save because he's holy. He's innocent. 
He's unstained. And he's separate from sinners. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Being accepted by thrice holy God is being described here that there was no other priest that could expiate our sins. No other priest that could purge our consciousness from dead works. No other priest that could procure acceptance with God for us, but only Christ Jesus. Only Christ Jesus could purchase our eternal redemption. Only Christ Jesus has the ability to administer and supply our grace. Only Christ Jesus can bring us into total obedience and worship. Only Christ Jesus can comfort us during trial, deliver us from temptation, and preserve us until his ultimate glory. So Christ Jesus is a high priest who is able to accept this first attribute that he is what? Holy. Holy. He has absolute purity. It is his very nature. He is free from the slightest spot or wrinkle or any of our original defilement. Instead of being like us, he is what we should be. Look at first, look at Luke 1, 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Even in his conception, is not tainted by Adam's sin because it does not come from another man. He's derived through the Holy Spirit, so he's completely exempt from the pollutions that come as part of being a descendant of Adam. Later on, Jesus will say of himself in John 1430b, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Just think about your own life. Does Satan have a claim on you? Is there a secret sin? Is there a secret hindrance? Is there a secret stain on you that only God, you, and Satan know about? That he can bring it up anytime he wants to put you back in your place when he sees you growing in the things of God and he wants to snatch your joy and say, you know, you really are not all that. Remember what you're doing? Remember what you've been thinking? Remember where you were yesterday. Not with Jesus. He says, the ruler of this world is coming. He doesn't have a thing on me. There is nothing within Christ in which the evil one could ever make a successful appeal against him. He has never had his nature defiled. 
He can never be disqualified. He is our priest because he was our sacrifice. His nature is holy. It is imperative that his holiness one day is transferred to us. He's not only holy, my friends, he's innocent. That tells us that not only outwardly but inwardly, he's perfectly conformed to the divine will inwardly toward God. Innocent tells us that Christ is the only one who's ever walked on this earth and has never been contaminated, never felt to temptation, never been injured by sin. And even when he came into contact with those who were sinners, he remained holy. He remained innocent. He lived his life, not for himself, but at the disposal of others. When he was ill-treated, he didn't retaliate. He's a lamb of God in the midst of wolves. So he's holy, he's innocent, but he's also unstained. He was in this world for 33 years, living under the curse of sin, <clears throat> mingling daily with sinners. Yet he was never defiled. He never picked up any sinful stains. He came and he, he healed lepers, but he never got leprosy. He healed the sick and those who were demon-possessed, but he never was sick, nor did he have a demon take over his life. He's unstained. His holiness has not been sullied in the slightest degree. He's he was never infected by the evils that surrounded him. Think about our lives. We are infected by the company we keep sometimes. You know, sometimes, you know, and I don't, don't get me wrong here. I think we still need to reach out to those in our families who don't know Christ. But some of them are covered up in sin. And it's kind of like that old game you play on the beach called a tug of war where you got the rope and you got the handkerchief in the middle and you're trying to pull each other over the line and the one that pulls over the line wins. You know, if you see where you are discipling someone and they are tending to pull you over the line back into your previous behavior, my advice to you is simply drop the rope. Some water, some plant, God gives the increase. But before I put myself in jeopardy, I would drop the rope. He, was, he never faced that. He could hold on all the way. So what was he, Pastor? He was holy. He was innocent. He was unstained. And then he was separated from sinners. There was a uniqueness about him that he demonstrated, and it demonstrated his fitness for his office as priest, as prophet, and as king. Think about it. <coughs> Jesus was really the blessed man that you see in the first psalm, right? He walked not in the counsel of the ungodly. He stood not in the way of sinners. He sat not in the seat of scornful. Though he lived among sinners, 
He was apart from them in his nature, apart from them in his character, apart from them in all of his motives, apart from them in all of his conduct. He was separate. And because he was separate, God elevated him higher than the heavens. That he wasn't numbered with the transgressors. But he did that voluntarily to save us. Christ is now the absolute one that is separated from sinners. He's distinguished from all of those that he is interceding for. But yet he understands everything that we go through. So that gives him the ability to discharge his office so fully and so completely. And that he makes intercession for us forever. This phrase, exalted higher than the heavens, is really peculiar because it's not found anywhere else in Scripture, but the meaning is obvious enough for us, obvious enough for us, because Jesus Christ occupies a special place in the highest honor with the most power than any other priest. His elevation is something that was conferred upon him by God himself, and everything below him is at his feet, and he's able to deal with it on a grand scale. Psalm 57 and 5, as it is written, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I want you to turn to Ephesians for just a moment. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Look at this statement about our high priest, Christ Jesus. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. John Owens once said, no one can more dishonor the Lord Christ than those who are willing to betray their souls by confessing them as his priests, but not trusting them as their priests. Christ is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separated from sinners, and we should trust him. Look at verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. When Christ offers up himself, there's no need for repetition. He took care of everything once and for all, because he is the ultimate priest. He is the new and living one. 
And because of him and his shed blood, we are able to fully enter the holy place. Hebrews 10, 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Remember when we see back in Matthew when Christ is on the cross and he gives up the ghost that it says in the Holy of Holies that the curtain that kept you from the Holy of Holies was ripped from the top all the way to the bottom because now because of his sacrifice, he had given a free entry into God. This is the one that opened up through his flesh our ability to go into the Holy of Holies beyond need. He is our priest who introduces us to his Father. And lastly, Jesus is able to save because he's been made perfect. 28 is really interesting, but it's really simple when you think about it. For the law appoints man in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You see, they kept appointing priests, and priests could only be a priest until his term was over. I think once he got a little over 50, he had to abdicate that, or he might just die. So you get another priest. But now we have a priest who lives forever. He's never going to die. He only died once. And now because he has superiority to all the other priests that have ever come, they were all men, but this priest is the son of God. He doesn't suffer from the affirmities of mere men. And because the word of oath which came later than the law, it appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. Look how Hebrews speaks about Christ in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We never have to doubt the incredible power, authority, closeness, and relationship when we deal with Christ directly because God the Father in these last days has made him the heir of all things. And when Christ tells us that all power has been given to me on heaven and on earth, then that is a statement that cannot be undone. We serve a priest who has total 
authority and is able to meet us in the darkness of our sin and bring in his marvelous light and lead us out of whatever situation we've gotten ourselves into. That he's able to save the uttermost. He's able to save because he's what? He's holy. He's unstained. He's innocent. He is separate from sinners and he's able to save because he's perfect. He's perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. And because of that, he has been given and lifted up and exalted above the heavens and all power is in his hands in heaven on earth and what does it say even under the earth he has full control and because he has full control you can trust him think about the fact what is so what is one of the most important things to us is that we have control of our lives we have control of our existence what a blessing to know that if we want complete control the only way to give it is to give it, get it is to give it away to the one who truly has control. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has come to save us, to redeem us, to restore us, to refine us, to return us to everything that we walked away from <clears throat> in the Garden of Eden. It's back to the future for us that if we trust him, we will be covered again with your righteousness and be in full relationship with you. Thank you for such a blessing. Thank you for such a gift. It's in the precious name of your son and our savior that we ask it all and all God's children said, amen.